Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is one of the kindest men I know, Bill Crouch. Bill is an actor and a writer who wrote a piece called Sodomy Rules that's a one-man show that explores all the outdated laws related to sodomy. He's such an outstanding actor and giving writer. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Here it is. Bill Crouch, how you doing? I'm great, Ryan. Welcome Thank to An Actor Despairs. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, you're one of my favorite people. We work uh, the same survival job, and you've been in the business for such a long time. You have such a rich history of Broadway and, and the theater and community in general. And Yeah, I've been lucky enough to work. I'm, I, I call myself the longest-running show on Broadway. <laughs> um, you, know, I, you know, I've been in doing working for Sandbar for like 25 years. Wow. Yeah. So you got to experience real New York, you know, in the early days. and Yeah, I mean, I came here in the late 80s when it was still really scary. And you have a show that's about to come out called Sodomy Rules. Sodomy Rules, The Bowers of E. Hardwick Trial. But before we dig into the work, I'd like to start at the beginning. So you grew up in Buffalo? Yeah, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Yep. Well, I grew up in Buffalo and Rochester. I kind of come from two cities because uh, I was born in Buffalo, and then my parents moved me to Rochester, and where I grew went all the way through high school, and that's really where I started theater. Got it. And then I moved back to Buffalo for college and did the theater program there at UB. How Talk to me about how you got into theater as a child. Were your parents, was that something they kind of like, hey, Bill, do this? No, I was like that weird kid. Like, I was like five years old and I saw like Cinderella on TV. There was a black and white version, I think, with Leslie Ann Warren. And I was like, what is that? Wow. That's a cool idea to sing your thoughts. Yeah. You know, and everyone thought I was kind of weird and strange. And I kept being weird and strange until about high school. And then we had this very cool woman come to uh, Fairport High School in Rochester. Uh, her name was Midge Marshall. And she was really interested in getting kids involved in really advanced level scripts. She liked kids who read a lot. And so she grabbed a bunch of us and started a drama program. Um, and uh, I worked with a guy named Gordy Hoffman, um, whose older brother, younger brother you might have heard of, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And so we were all in that program, you know, with Midge together. And she was just kicking our ass and making us do really advanced stuff like like a lot of people don't know this, but Phil Hoffman's first time with Death of a Salesman was in high school. Midge made him do uh, Willie Loman. Yeah, I remember hearing about that in the yeah. documentary. Did you get to see it? I didn't get to see. Uh, well, I saw the Broadway. I saw him on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I would worship him. But um, no, I had already um, gone to Buffalo, and um, I did. She had me do Passion of Dracula, so I was doing like these really adult-themed uh, plays like J.B. Archibald McLeish when I was in high school. Wow. So that's what turned me on to it, really, was Mitch Marshall and that program. And there was a wonderful music program there, too. A guy named Lonnie Arnold was our music director, and he had us do all these really intense classical pieces, and he made me sing solos when I was too scared to do it, and that's how it started. Wow. And so did you, when you got into it, did you feel that, that click of, like, yeah. this is it? Because I think, you know, as a scared gay kid growing up in a conservative town, you get bullied a lot. And I was just bullied a lot. And then all of a sudden, when I got on stage, there was some power there. Wow. All of a sudden, I wasn't afraid of things in general. And that happened right away. And then Midge had us auditioning for this, um, like it was the acting company, John Hausman's acting company, did a summer school program for young people, New York State School of the Arts. And I got into, into that. And it was that 
time, that was really formative. And they taught us how to just, you know, do mask work and that kind of stuff. Really advanced, creative stuff that was nothing like anything else I experienced in high school. So when I came back from my senior year, I was like big man on campus. Yeah. You know, I thought I was, you know, hot stuff. And were your parents very supportive of this? Incredibly. I had a really liberal mom and dad. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I was really lucky. Um, and they were. Because Buffalo's in Rochester can be conservative, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Buffalo's more laid back. Buffalo yeah. has a lot of different ethnicities and it's a very laid back town. Rochester is sort of, they call it newer money, like Eastman Kodak, and it's very corporate. Bausch and Lom was there. Um, but my dad was a, uh, an ad man. He was uh, uh, a writer. He wrote ad copy and commercials and he worked with people like Ted Knight and uh, Rich Little, who was a famous comedian back then, uh, and wrote some stuff for uh, Bill Cosby. And so he had that kind of, um, he, he read the New York Times all the time. You yeah. know what I mean? He was that kind of guy. He wasn't like your average small town guy. And so did your parents give you the imperative that you had to go to college? Yes, big time. Yes. I said I wanted to be an actor. And my mom said, no, you're going to be an English teacher or a lawyer. And I was like, mom, I really want to do theater. And she was like, okay, whatever you do, you have to get a four-year degree. Yeah. And she was right. So it was a very smart thing. And I met a lot of great people in college. Thank God I went. So you double majored in English and theater? I started as a double major, and then I moved over to theater only. Nice. And, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And how was the program? It was fantastic. We had a, a guy named Saul Elkin was the chairman of the department then, and he's just recently stepped down. He uh, knew Joe Papp in New York. So they would trade you know, ideas uh, back and forth. And we had a summer uh, Shakespeare in the Park program that was free to the people of Buffalo. So people came and... They did three shows. One they would take around, but the other two were in rep uh, on this beautiful stage in Delaware Park, which wow. was just this gorgeous park in Buffalo. A lot of people uh, don't know about this, but it's a wonderful, wonderful program that still goes on today through the university. It's great. So did you graduate with an equity card then? Or? I did not. Oh, no, okay. I had, I, no, I didn't even have equity points when I came to New York. I really didn't. Uh, there was a great regional theater in Buffalo at the time, Studio Arena. I auditioned for some stuff and didn't get in. Um, and so when I came to New York, I was, you know, really green. I had nothing. Was the L.A. thing even something you considered? Or because theater was your thing, New York was the only way to go? Yeah, it just seemed too scary to go all the way out to L.A., honestly. I was yeah. just a kid. You know, I moved here with my friends from college. They said, Bill, do you want to split a house with us? And I was like, yeah, how much do you think the rent's going to be? And they were like, $200 a month. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Wow. And <laughs> 200 a month. And, and so... And but I did it, and, I, and I'm so glad I did. And this is the 90s? Came, yeah. No, this was 86. Wow. 1986 was when I first moved to New York. And what was that like? Talk to me about that in New okay. York. So uh, Times Square was so scary. Wow. It was so scary. It was a wasteland. And there were you know tons of people living on the street, and the Broadway theaters, were, most of them were closed. There was, uh, I think, 42nd Street was open, and maybe a chorus line, and you know there was just a few things. And so uh, it was just a big kind of dark wasteland. And I remember a friend of mine who worked for this company that we worked for uh, before I did. He came home one day, and there was a show called Ain't Broadway Grand. And he said, I think Broadway's dying. I don't think it's grand. I yeah. said, I don't think there's going to be a Broadway in 20 years. And then everything got turned around. You know, they just... And was that partially because of, like, the gay men's health crisis and so many different, you know, theater 
people were dying and well and i think it was because the industry itself didn't have didn't understand its worth it didn't know like there had been a lot of graft and a lot of problems with new york city yeah and then um you know they started to turn around with um you know i don't want to say any particular mayor i don't really know i, yeah. I know it was koch and then um giuliani and i think giuliani was the one who made the deal with uh, mike eisner at disney i'm not sure about that there were some great articles in the mid-90s about the restoration of times square and yeah. how there was going to be a lot of money pumped into it because they found out that a lot of people who think about New York City at that time in the late 80s, early 90s were thinking about Broadway, but they didn't actually know how to go to a Broadway show. So there was this huge movement to uh, redevelop the area and boy, it really, I mean, we were living the effects of it now. And so then what were you what were your process to try to get auditions? What was the first thing you did here? Did you do you enroll backstage? Class? There's a, a news, uh, newspaper called Backstage, wow. right? And uh, you were, we all got the information you go buy this newspaper and you open up the back and there are some auditions in the back of it. So that's what we did. And there were people who knew like when Backstage was going to be delivered to your area earliest in the morning so they would go and get it first. Wow. So they could get in line first for the audition. Like cattle call style? Yes. It wow. was all cattle calls, all open calls. And because I was non-equity, you know, there was a lot for non-equity back then. Yeah. And um, there were a lot of auditions in the spring and the fall always. And then I would just go, you know, circle about five or six things. And I usually got something. And, you know, I would just go do it. So you were getting traction? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did a lot of musicals. I did Matt and the Fantastics. And I did uh, a, a, the very tail end of the... Uh, uh, Evita, one of the Evita national tours for six months, and that was all through my non-equity friends. Wow, that's amazing. And then, so talk to me about exactly how you got into writing. That is a great question. I think, you know, I got into writing because I did this book called The Artist's Way. Have you talk, ever heard of that? No. The Artist's Way. It was a really big, like, in the mid-90s, like 94, 95, 96, somewhere in there, and it's like a workbook, and you just sort of work through it. Each day, you do some writing and stuff, and it was to sort of address your concerns that you have as an artist, like, you know, am I working enough? Am I working hard enough on my career and all that stuff? And it was wonderful, and one of the things that they do is they have you write morning pages. So every morning, you get up, and you have to write for at least two or three pages every day, and that was, I never knew that I wanted to do that. Yeah. And uh, my dad would always ask me, Bill, don't you want to be a writer? And I'd be like, no, I'm going to be an actor. And then, no, I turned into, I just loved writing. And so when I moved into Manhattan Plaza, that was like the year, like 1999. That was when I got into Manhattan Plaza. That's it. That's it, like 43rd and 9th. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's, an, it's a place that, well, you know, basically they take 30% of your income for rent. And that was the first time I had enough money to work to work enough to, so that I could take time off and just study. Wow. And so that's when I started writing. That was when I started to write this play, Sodomy Rules. It started in the, like, the year 2000. And were you workshopping at this as you wrote? Like, were you having friends read it aloud? Like, what was your process like? Uh, my first process was, what do I want to write about? And why do I want to write about it? Yeah. So I was just bumming around looking for something that I really wanted to write about. And I thought, I don't think I want to do a one-man show about my life. I think I want to do it about something else. And that's when Anna DeVere Smith was doing Fires in the Mirror and Twilight Los Angeles. She was doing all those plays. And I had seen them on PBS. And she would go and do an interview people around a major event and then become those people in the interviews. Wow. And so I thought, that's how I'll do my play. I didn't, still didn't know what I wanted to write about. And Laramie Project at this point didn't exist Laramie yet. Laramie Project had happened l a little later than this, but yeah. that, that also gave me huge fuel and momentum. I bet. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, maybe I should write this play for a group of people to do. I just didn't know. Yeah. And so uh, 
I found this little book called, it was like the ACLU Guide to Gay and Lesbian Rights. And I was like, oh, I wonder what my rights are. I had no idea what gay and lesbian rights were or if they would even pertain to me. So I was reading through this little book in the bookstore and it talked about this case um, where a guy was arrested in his bedroom and it, for having sex with his boyfriend. And I thought, how could that possibly be? You know. Yeah. And so I started to find out about it. So I called the ACLU and I said, do you have any information on this Bowers Hardwick case? And they were like, well, yeah, actually, we have the whole transcript of the Supreme Court trial. It was a really big deal. So they sent it to me in the mail for free. They just sent it to me. I said, well, I'm thinking about writing a play about it. And they were like, do it. So they sent the transcript. And on the back were some lawyers' names and phone numbers. And I didn't know if they were for or against the gay guy. I didn't know. Yeah. So I just called the first name on the list. And it was still the same number. But it was from, like, the trial happened in 86. And I was calling this guy in, like, the year 2002. Wow. And it was the same phone number. It was a lawyer's name. And he picked up the phone. He was like, hi. Uh, yeah, this is John Sweet. And I was like, uh, so uh, my name is Bill Crouch. And uh, I'm a playwright. Lie. I've yeah. never written a play before. And I said, uh, I just wanted to ask you some questions about this Bowers Hardwick case, uh, about this guy, Michael Hardwick. And he was like, oh, yeah, he was my client. I represented him. And, you know, we agreed to um, represent him for the fee of $1. And um, I said, you were his lawyer? And he said, yeah, I was his lawyer. And I said, well, uh, I'd like to interview you and maybe write a play about it. And he said, okay, here's the deal. Why don't I get Lou Levinson on the phone and uh, we'll call Kathy Wilde. We'll get everybody involved. No, he said, you know what? Just come down to Atlanta. Stay with me and my wife, Midge, for the entire for a weekend or two. And we'll just have bring everybody to the house and we'll just start interview wow. process. So Did you? Yeah. So... I mean, it took me a little while to get it all together, yeah. about six or eight months, and then I just hopped on a plane and flew to Atlanta and rented a car while I was down there, and uh, John and Midge, they were having a, a huge bridal party shower for some friends of theirs, and so John said, Bill, the you're going to have to help me get the house ready. That's going to be my fee for giving you all these interviews, and I said, cool. Well, John is like, he was like 55 at the time, and he has the energy of 10 men. And so we did not stop talking and working for three days. I have never been so exhausted in my life. We were cleaning lawn chairs and cleaning off the back patio and getting tables ready, you know, and they were having this huge freaking party. And in the meantime, I'm desperately trying <laughs> to, like, make sure my tape recorder is working to get all these great people that he had me interview. It was incredible. So you were inundated with information. Inundated. And I was, and I, and I had all these tapes and I, I met people at, like, gay bars and restaurants and stuff. And then I came back to New York. And I still had a lot of questions because I wasn't a lawyer. I had no law. So I had to kind of teach myself the law. I had to kind of stop what I was doing and go to the library and talk to people and talk to lawyers about how to understand how the Supreme Court works, yeah. how case law works, all those kinds of things. And then I had to kind of figure out how to make that interesting for people who don't have time to learn all that stuff, totally. right? To tell a story, a fun story about this crazy case. And then, then you knew you had something. I got really depressed, and I put it away for about 12 weeks and lie in bed and just thought, I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? And then I took one of the tapes out. It was John talking to me, um, and I just stuck it in the tape machine. I said, you know, I said to myself, just listen to it. Just yeah. listen to it and see if there's anything you can do with this. And the first thing he said was, so... Um, 
you know, there's hundreds of ways you could fight against the oppression of gay people. We decided to go to the core issue, sodomy. When you took on sodomy, you weren't talking about peripheral issues. Yeah. You weren't talking about gay science teachers or issues that required people to interpolate things. We're talking about the raw fact because, you know, oral genital sex, that's their concern. That's the essence of it. I mean, everybody would like a gay science teacher if they thought he or she never had any relationships with anybody. You know, don't ask, don't tell. No, we're talking about the heart of it. And we thought it was pretty important stuff, brother. And so did the judge because he moved us on to the next level. Wow. And that's was such a beautiful paragraph, such a beautiful train of thought, and such a simple way to talk to the audience about why it was important for him, a yeah. straight man, to sort of figure that well, what he was going to do and how it was going to go. I thought, I have to write that down. Yeah. I have a responsibility now to document this. And then as you started writing, you pretty early on got picked up at New York Theater Workshop, right? Well, I just sent an email to Jim Nicola. They had, I had gone to see a show there because that's my dream place to do the show someday, maybe in the future and, you know, in a perfect bubble. And I, uh, <laughs> I saw a show there and of course I loved it. And, um, they had, this little coffee cart. And then when I got home, I looked at their website. Just how could I send them, uh, you know, the script? Yeah. And on the website, it said, talk to Jim about our coffee service. Now, I knew Jim was the artistic administrator's name, so I thought maybe it's Jim Nicola. So I sent a little thing to the coffee service place and said the coffee was great. By the way, I had this, I'm writing this play about Bowers Hardwick. Do you have any interest? And I got a, email right back from Jim saying, hi, this is Jim Nicole, artistic director. Yeah, I have a lot of interest in that. Why don't, you, why don't we meet for coffee? Wow. And so he just met me for coffee in my neighborhood. We talked a little bit. He said, okay, why don't you bring what you have? I know it's not done. I know it's not ready. And just come to New York Theater Workshop and we'll just hear it out loud in the air, whatever you have. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Like the day before I got ready to read it for him, um, he said, by the way, I'm inviting a couple people. I said, great. He said, I said, who? He said, Moises Kaufman and a young director friend of mine. Oh my and God. so that's, and so when I got there, there was, it was in full rehearsal. Like there were eight shows going on and Jim said, Bill, I'm really sorry. We don't have a room. Why don't you come upstairs? We'll do it in the kitchen. Yeah. So they were, <laughs> I was upstairs in the kitchen at New York theater workshop at this little table like this and they were on one end and I was on the other. And fortunately I had practiced all the voices, you know, yeah. it's a lot of Southern accents and I had worked on it a good bit. Um, and I just did it for them and they were great. They just said, you know, you got to do this, this and this, and this is the next part of your process. And they really gave me some serious direction and time. Did that light a fire under your ass then to keep it going? Going or? Absolutely. And yeah. then and then um, I bumped into this wonderful woman named Rebecca Teichman, and she's a brilliant director. And she said, Bill, I just want to work with you on your relationship to the main character, Michael Hardwick, and why this piece and this person moves you so. And she was the first person who really got me to understand that I was going to have to do some writing that wasn't just the interviews. Yeah. So I was going to have to write, why should an audience care about this play right now? Totally. You know, so that was coming up. And then what was your first run of it? When did you do that? I did it for friends at a, at a public high school near my house, um, like 10 or 15 people, and for this wonderful woman named Catherine Kerr, who's just recently passed away. She's an acting coach of mine. She worked with um, Meryl Streep and Silkwood. She wow. was just a fantastic actress. And she was the first teacher that I was sort of felt brave enough to put the material in front of. And she said, Bill, you've got to do this, the whole thing together, and hear all the voices that you're creating in one yeah. room. And then... Um, so I sat on that for a while. After I did that a couple of times, I thought, no, it needs some more work. And it did. It needed more work. And finally, 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 I got it into something resembling what I'm doing it as today. Yeah. And I did that in 2009 at the Fresh Fruit Festival. And they were kind enough to award me a little, uh, you know, solo performance award. And it was just great. It Amazing. Was really great. And then talk to me about this run you're about to do on Monday. So... So I got the brilliant idea to just put the script out there and see if anybody wanted to pick it up. Yeah. 
And do you have a literary agent? Or No, or I do. All, all the submissions are myself. Wow. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to want this play anymore because the sodomy laws, those things have been um, federally, you know. Eradicated. Um, yeah. yeah. But I just found out that in 2016, 26 men were arrested in Louisiana for on sodomy charges. They're still using them. Yeah. Wow. The, the cops are still using them against mostly gay and lesbian people. And it, it does tend to happen more in public areas but it's not legal to use them anymore and they yeah. know that it's a long process of, of trickery that the cops have to use sometimes to get done what they want to get done but um uh so uh, what we're we talking about well, about did this run in, in, yeah so i put it in with emerging artists uh, who i've always loved emerging artists they're really wonderful they let you do things when they're not really finished it's a, it's called the new works series got it and um and i knew i needed to rewrite the ending i knew i needed to update the piece and um i thought well if they accept me i'll be frightened enough to actually do some work on it and that's exactly what happened they said yeah but we want you to do this but i was like oh I have work to do. Okay, cool. And so... How long, what window did you get between that and, and this date of doing it? They accepted me, I think, in April. Okay. So I've had May, June, and July, and August. But what happened was I started writing another play and that I really wanted to get done by the beginning of August. So I took a month off to just write that play. And then I came back to this piece. And, you know, um, it feels like I got to something deeper with this rewrite and wow. an understanding of why this particular young man, Michael Hardwick, moves his story moves me so much. He was really fearless when he put himself out there and said, I'm going to try to make the world better for all people, yeah. but especially the LGBTQ community. And he really had to give up his privacy so that maybe someday we could have ours. And that's what he did. If you're okay, would you mind talking about your trajectory as as a gay man experiencing, you know, gay rights? Like in, in 2002, you know, now, 2019, it couldn't be, I don't want to, for lack of a better term, cooler to be gay. You know what I mean? But like... And, and, oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> I hope I've never been cooler at this advanced age. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And so a part of my process was why do I still feel so compelled to tell this man's story? Yeah. You so know? What was it like in 2002 when you first started this? Like, what... There was no marriage rights. Yeah. We weren't allowed to serve in the military. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was frustrating to know that my brother had been together with his husband for 20 years, but they weren't allowed to get married. Wow. It was very strange to me that we were living in that kind of world. But it was also like when I first came to New York City and ACT UP was starting and all that stuff and they were marching in the streets and the gay pride parades, it was very compelling to be a part of the movement. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that, you know, we've accomplished a lot of the major goals. Yeah. And so what's, what, where, is gay activism or is it needed or is it is it something we should care about well then along comes donald trump yeah and to be quite frank it fired me up and a lot of my artistic friends totally. and i think Same the here. zeitgeist right now is hey he's not kidding he wants to enact religious freedom legislation and yeah. so when and i mike pence with conversion therapy it's disgusting yes, yes, yes yeah yes, it's really happening and so the legislation that state that they're trying to push through now is basically if someone has a firm religious belief and they have a state-sanctioned license, like if they're a, uh, a paramedic or if they're a pharmacist um, and really a nurse, a doctor, an EMT, a lawyer. If any kind of state license, you can deny services to any person from the LGBTQ community if you have a firm religious belief against the community. Like that Kansas 
who refused to issue the marriage license or uh, yeah only yeah. only uh, you know it's yeah. one thing to refuse to issue a marriage license it's another thing if you're a paramedic and you go to a wedding because dad's having a heart attack and you see two women getting married and you say i can't support this lifestyle i'm not going to help him oh my God. and people are already being refused access to contraceptives which is really crucial uh that 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 not be allowed and also uh prep uh, gay men are being denied uh, their um, Truvada because the pharmacist says, I have a firm religious belief against this community. I cannot give them these kinds of drugs. It will just proliferate their lifestyle. So this is really, and Trump's really behind this. Like, if you look at the White House's website right now, it says, you know, religious freedom is our first freedom, he says. And so there, he's gearing this up for the for the next election. And it's not a joke. Yeah. So when I realized all of that, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what happened to Michael. He was denied access to privacy by the Supreme Court because they had a bias against gay people. Wow. They just, in 1986, didn't think that the community was very important. Yeah. And so they just said, you know, heterosexual couples have a right to privacy, but cops should still be able to possibly arrest them if they're doing things we don't like, which is crazy. Totally. And then... Uh, further, basically in 86, it was decided that gay and lesbian people in this country have absolutely no constitutional rights. They don't have the right to privacy in the home, and they don't have a right to intimate association. So that was a big deal. That was a very big deal to me. It didn't get overturned until 2003, but we're going right back to that now with Trump. Yeah. It's right back to the same place. So I thought it was really important to talk about this case. You know, it's a war story. Yeah. Sodomy rules is a war story. It's the LGBTQ, you know, diary of Anne Frank. It's the, it's, we're being annihilated. And it was just really important to me to get out there and say to folks, Hey guys, this is happening. Trump is using religious freedom legislation. It's happening now. And I put that in the play. And, and talk to me. You know, I, I know you, you sounds like it's still a work in progress, but when would you plan on publishing it? I have no idea when I plan on publishing. That's a great question. Yeah. Hey, anybody listening? <laughs> Ryan has a great idea. Yeah. I, I feel like no there's no idea. time like now. You know, what I really want to do is I want to do it again at United Solo or some one of these wonderful New York City festivals and do it a few more times and just see if there's you know, more to say and yeah. more audience. And I hope there is. And I'd love to talk to you for a little bit about your, your time working on Broadway. You know, you've almost hit three decades now. <laughs> talk, talk to me about that. Has that been... I mean, you've seen so many trends and failures and launches. What has that been like? Well, what I love is that Broadway's gotten bigger than ever, that people are coming to see theater now more than they ever have. Yeah. You know, I was just lamenting, lamenting, and, you know, I have all theater people in my building. It's the most wonderful place on earth. And uh, one of the guys was just lamenting at how expensive it's gotten. And that's really true. It has gotten very, very pricey. Broadway being? Yeah. yeah. But... Because of, you know, things like concessions and the things around Broadway making money because it's a growth industry and stuff, off-off Broadway is being served in some ways by that money, too. People have time to, you know, make money and then go do their not, their equity or non-equity shows that are not major Broadway or off-Broadway shows. And so I was doing some criticism some uh, for this really fun online magazine called Stage Buddy, and I got to see so many off-off shows for free. Yeah. Um, and it's a really vibrant vibrant community. There are dozens and dozens of great small theater companies in New York and I feel like it's a great time to come to New York City and be a part of the theater community in general. Totally. And do you feel like, you know, now that we live it was so many there being off, off, off Broadway that there is room for more and more voices? You oh, know? I, oh gosh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, you know, like everything is is 
constantly in, in flux and in change. It's the city, and that's kind of the cool thing about it. But the young voices that are coming to the city now, they have something very different to say than I had to say 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear. Totally. Uh, it's a, you know, there's a lot of information being given to young people now really quickly, right? With the internet and all that kind of stuff. I didn't, we didn't Google anything when I came to New York. There was no Google. For me either. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. Like you're seeing people, a real pastiche of people and styles and, 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 people bringing lots of different kinds of ways of telling stories to off and off off and i think that's really compelling yeah 100 percent. and then i'm also curious to ask you you know what are some things that you've seen make for successful careers in broadway both in personal level and friends you've had that have had careers or people that you've just admired from afar well, you know, it's better probably it's a lot easier to be a character actor in some ways. If yeah. you're gonna if you're gonna do it, character actor and you're a character actor, don't be sad. Don't <laughs> be sad that you're not the most beautiful one in the room. Don't be sad, be happy. Yeah. You know, that's what I would say. Yeah. And enjoy being funny. A lot of the, my friends who are really, really funny, uh they were always had great senses of humor. And bringing that into your work I think is really part and parcel to being a success and not taking yourself too seriously. I think really you know, being okay with working for free and doing those readings whenever anybody asks. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. Showing up early, leaving late. And, yeah. and working on spec. I mean, really, like, I was thinking to myself, what am I doing this play? And yet, it feel, there's nothing makes me feel more alive. Then I'm going to go back after this radio show. I'm going to probably spend two or three hours just running through the show. And I want to make sure they hear every word that I think is important in the script. And that's the fun for me. Yeah. I don't know what's fun for them. Uh, they're going to decide that when they show up. But I know what's fun for me to work on. And uh, I wouldn't be doing it over this ridiculously long period of time and loving it so much if it wasn't something I really believed in fully and if uh, what i've seen from all my friends you know i have a buddy he's uh, his name is brian Keene. he's a wonderful actor and he's on like you know ray donovan and house of cards this past season you know both shows and wow. he's just a terrific actor but he loves it so much and when we hang out and eat burgers we only talk about theater yeah. that's what we talk about and, and and film and great acting and i always say if you're that person you're going to be fine totally you're going to be fine. It doesn't matter if you win the Tony or not. You're going to love your life. Who's inspiring you right now? Anyone in particular? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's a great question. Yeah. Well, yeah, Slave Play. Slave Play is inspiring Jeremy, me right now. Everybody yeah. in Slave Play and the writer, Jay O'Hara. Yeah, Jeremy O'Hara. Yeah, I think. Or, amazing. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I'm really it's brilliant. excited. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, you know, uh, Pinter is always a big inspiration for me. So and the trail, the trail was amazing. Yeah, and just those guys it. were just amazing. Yeah, it was so funny. It was the first time I saw a show, and then I went to go get the subway after. And then, sure enough, Charlie Cox. It just, uh, I was like... Phenomenal. It, yeah, he was riding with me. I was like, so badass. You know, and you could just tell he's probably a really nice guy. Yeah. Really, you know... Just, I'm so jealous of him. And, uh, you know, Tom Hiddleston. And uh, who was the young woman? Who was, she was fantastic. Oh, his girlfriend. And, oh, uh, yeah, she's, she's so fantastic. She was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so Broadway is exciting right now. I'm going to go see The Inheritance tomorrow night, the Matthew Lopez piece. Amazing. Which I also referenced at the end of my play. You know, I think it's really important for gay writers to support one another. Um, I don't know if he's gay. Actually, I just assume he is because yeah. of the play. But, uh, you know, I am. And, uh, and you know, and Tony Kushner. We had Angels in America. You know, Tony Kushner, that play will never stop inspiring me. The people that work on that play um, were phenomenal across the board. And everybody, it was the best work experience on Broadway I've ever had. Wow. Um, 
the audience was so spectacular. I just want to say, if you came to see, if you're hearing this podcast and you came to see Angels in America at the Simon, I am your fan for life because that group of people, the fans that came to see that show, wow. would talk to me about the show. They they looked you right in the eye. They treated you like a human being. It was fantastic. That's amazing. And And there were thousands of them that came to see that show and to a person everybody the house manager the ushers everybody was just like wow what a great audience yeah and i think that really says something about the writer totally you know what he asked all of us to understand and and talk to me what's what's next in your arsenal do you have you said you had another play you were planning or thinking about well i've actually you know this is the year of book crouch like okay let's just let all just accept it 2019 that's yeah, my year i love um, it <laughs> I wrote a play called Stage Monster, and it's about a Beckett scholar who goes off the rails and starts stalking a critic, and in comes a mediator, and she's this. She's based on all the really wonderful women that have been in my life, uh, my mom and this wonderful woman, Marilyn O'Connor, and um, my cousin Denise, who's an emergency room nurse in Rochester at, at Strong. She's just amazing. Wow. Um, and she comes in, and she sort of solves a problem that this person may not really be aware that they have. He yeah. has, you know, so that play is, I'm doing that, uh, working on that with a wonderful woman named Annie Chadwick. Um, she does up-to-date theatricals here in New York, and she's just a terrific actress. And so we're sort of developing that piece. We'll probably do a stage reading later this year or early next year. And then for the Drama Club NYC, it's a really great group of people that yeah. I work with. Andrew um, Benvenuti was it, on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And really fun to work with. Yeah. Uh, he's got tons of energy. And um, a wonderful actress named... Uh, Sarah Spring is going to be doing the female lead in that. Uh, it's called The Vestation of Alice James. And it's about, it, it's a basically a modern retelling of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Wow. Uh, Henry James had a sister named Alice James uh, in real life and a brother named William James. Now, William was a brilliant psych psychol psychologist and also sort of a philosopher. But he worked on the James Lyme theory of emotion, which um, Lee Strasberg used uh, to uh, work with the, the method here in New York. It wow. was uh, a really interesting idea that we that we don't remember emotions separate from our body. Totally. So, um, Alice was uh, involved in all those and she was sort of the prototype for the governess. When you see the turn of the screw, uh, Michelle Dockery, I think, plays it in a, um, it's really Alice James. And um, she, so I, I wanted to write a play about that. That's amazing. And what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you, Bill? Uh, you know, uh, do you have a website? Or? Call me. <laughs> do you have an Instagram? I'm really nice. I say hi, and uh, you know, hit my Facebook page, Bill Krause on Facebook. I'm still, I'm st actually just starting to design a web page. Amazing. So Very I will keep people that. posted. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. You so can email me. <laughs> What's your email? <laughs> uh, William T. Crouch at uh, gmail dot com. Amazing. Bill Crouch, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I got pleasure, so much buddy. love for you, and so much more things are uh, amazing. Amazing in store for you. I know it. Right back at you, buddy. Thanks. All right. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.